Corinthians 5. First Corinthians chapter 5. Once again, read the entirety of the chapter. It is reported commonly that there is fornication among you, such fornication as is not so much as named among the Gentiles that one should have his father's wife. And you're puffed up and have not rather mourned that he that hath done this deed might be taken away from you. For I verily as absent in body but present in spirit have judged already as though I were present concerning him that hath so done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when ye are gathered together, and my spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, to deliver such an one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your glorying is not good. Know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump? Purge out therefore the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump, as ye are unleavened. For even Christ our Passover is sanctified for us, sacrificed for us. Therefore let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote unto you in an epistle not to company with fornicators, yet not altogether with the fornicators of this world, or with the covetous, or extortioners, or with idolaters, for then must ye needs go out of the world. But now I have written unto you not to keep company. If any man that is called a brother be a fornicator or covetous or an idolater or a railer or a drunkard or an extortioner with such an one know not to eat. For what have I to do to judge them also that are without? Do not ye judge them that are within, but them that are without God judgeth. Therefore, put away from among yourselves that wicked person. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us always to take your words to heart and to use them wisely and to use them rightly, but certainly to use them. And so we pray that you would teach us tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, last week, at least in my mind, the emphasis of the evening was spent on verses 1 through 4, and we just kind of walked through not simply the sin of this fornication, but of Paul's emphasis upon the fact that it was, that the church's attitude was a failure to uphold the distinction between the church and the world. And twice Paul told them what they ought to have done, which are found in verses 5 and 13, which we would call discipline. Paul's advice was for them to have disciplined this man, to expel him from the membership of the assembly. And that was what Paul wanted to happen, and that is what Paul counseled them. <clears throat> Before we return then to the text itself, I just kind of want to start there and talk about some things that have bearing upon 
where we find ourselves in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. First of all, I would just remind us of chapter 1 and verse number 2, in which the theme of the book is set forth that the church is called to be a set-apart people in a sinful world. Um, That we are, by salvation, by practice, by calling, not the world. And we are distinct from the world. And what that means then with reference to sin is that sin should never find a warm welcome among God's people. Sin does not belong here. It doesn't really belong anywhere, but in particular it does not belong in the assembly. Secondly, the counsel that Paul gives in this passage is at the very extreme end of what a church's responsibility towards sin is. Um, To call this the nuclear option, I mean no disrespect to to the scripture, but to expel somebody from membership is at the very extreme. It is the last thing that a church has to do. Sometimes, right, some, some infractions, some sins may simply be, for lack of a better word, ignored. Proverbs 10, 12, hatred stirreth up strifes, but love covereth all sins. Quoted by Peter, 1 Peter 4, 8, and above all things have fervent charity among yourselves. For charity shall cover the multitude of sins. So the minute a church encounters sin, it doesn't expel members. Some sins can simply be overlooked. And exactly what those sins are, I don't know. They're going to be probably more personal in nature, certainly lesser ramification. They may be a sin that is committed and immediately repented of. And so we just, it's, it, it requires no further action. Sometimes it is the responsibility, and I would point out in this case, not just the church in, at large, but sometimes it is the responsibility of individual members to point out the errors of other people. Paul writes in Romans 15, 14, I myself also am persuaded of you, my brethren, that ye are also full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, able to admonish one another. Able to talk to somebody's mind in such a way that they hear and understand and respond. 1 Thessalonians 5, 14, Now we exhort you, Brethren, brothers and sisters, warn them that are unruly, comfort the feeble-minded, support the weak, be patient towards all men. 2 Thessalonians 3.13, but ye brethren be not weary in well-doing. And if any man obey not our word by this epistle, note that man and have no company with him that he may be ashamed 
Yet count him not as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. And what frequently happens, folks, is that people want to drop all such conversations into the lap of the pastor. Here, you're the pastor. This is your responsibility. But the Bible just will not permit that. The Bible levies the responsibility upon individual members to, depending upon the time and the circumstance and the situation, interact with other members on the things that they are doing or failing to do in their lives. This is the scripture. So again, <clears throat> right? And, and we want to be careful there because, right, because the New Testament never turns the, treats the church like it's some kind of police station where we all walk in the door looking for infractions and some of us have the ministry of correction. But, right, there are, <clears throat> which we all want, right? We all want the ministry of correction, <clears throat> but, but there are going to be times and incidents and circumstances in which it is going to fall to somebody in the congregation to point out to somebody else in the congregation that there is a glaring deficiency. And the Bible authorizes it and expects it. So some infractions can simply be covered in love and others can be commented upon. Sometimes there is the entirety of the due process system and that is just, that is what is discussed in Matthew 18 or something actually has its origins as a private matter that is unresolved it is not covered the private correction goes nowhere and it amplifies from there and i'm just calling that the due process because there is a process that is put into place as to how to do that. <clears throat> and then you have the situation like we have in, Matthew, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, which comes to the same end. In Matthew 18, the end, if, if there is persistent failure to admit and repent, the end is the expulsion of the member. <clears throat> That's what Jesus means. Excuse me. <clears throat> Let him be as a publican and a heathen. Let him be as an outsider. He's, he's not, he may be in his heart one of us, but if he will not live like one of us, there's no place for him among us. Now that's where Paul counsels here in 1 Corinthians 5, but he doesn't follow the due process steps. He doesn't say, has anybody talked to him? Well, have there been two witnesses? Paul says, everybody knows this. Everybody knows what's going on. Everybody's celebrating what's going on. And I'm here to tell you that this should not be celebrated, that this guy needs to go. So I think, I would argue, that on the basis of the, pu the public awareness of this sin, it is commonly reported, and upon the pride of the congregation concerning this sin, they're puffed up. That Paul just deals with it as he does. Everybody is talking about it. Everybody knows about it. And you have not addressed it. Thirdly, 
I think we would all understand that this tends to run, these kinds of things, all of them, tend to run contrary to our spirits. We don't want to sit in a church service that the, the subject matter of which is the expulsion of a member. And most of us don't want to have the conversation with somebody about the sin they are committing. And the reality is most of us do not <clears throat> cover in love a multitude of sins because we don't really cover it. We just talk to everybody else except the person who's committing the sin, which is only another type of sin. <clears throat> but there is, folks, a broad, a broad body of teaching, and unfortunately, fundamentalism has been, I would say, in many ways, the point of the spear that the very best way to do ministry <clears throat> is to always hide all sin. To always hide all sin. <clears throat> For the sake of the ministry. And so we all know the horror stories of passing around adulterers and fornicators from church to church, particularly among pastoral staff. We all have heard of the situations in which everybody knows of some atrocity being committed, but the, but the public portion of the church never seems to speak to it. But we're going to come right back to 1 Corinthians. But let me ask you if you would take a moment and turn to Acts chapter 5. In Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 10, we have the story of Ananias and Sapphira, who committed a sin in secret. The only two people in the world who knew the sin were the husband and the wife. But of course, the Holy Spirit knew the sin and told Peter about the sin. And the church never really had the opportunity to act. God just killed them both. And so in verse number 11, you have the reaction of the world to what happened to Ananias and Sapphira. Acts chapter 5, verse number 11. And great fear came upon all the church and upon as many as heard these things. Hey, did you hear what happened down there at First Baptist Church? The pastor asked somebody if they had actually lied about their giving record and they fell over dead right there in the middle of the conversation. Verse number 12, And by the hands of the apostles were many signs and wonders wrought among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. They were of one mind, one heart, one fear. And of the rest durst no man join himself to them, but the people magnified them. So people became, and the Bible commends this, very cautious about associating with a church like that. And that was a good thing because the church is supposed to be a holy body, not just a large body. And verse number 14, and believers were the more added to the church, multitudes 
both of men and women, insomuch they brought forth the sick into the streets and laid them on the beds and couches, that at the least the shadow of Peter passing by might overshadow some of them. There came also a multitude out of the cities round about unto Jerusalem, bringing sick folks, them which were vexed with unclean spirits, and they were healed, every one. And my point simply is this, folks. It is not uncommon for churches to be very fearful and timid about obeying scriptures, about dealing with sin for fear of the repercussions. And maybe I mentioned this to you. I have a, a, a guy that I know was telling me this. I wasn't at the meeting. This has been 25 years ago of a very prominent man, and he was having a faculty meeting, and the subject matter of the faculty meeting was that one of the deacons was molesting his daughters. And the discussion was, what shall we do? And the pastor said, well, if we make a big deal out of this, we're going to lose the largest giver in the church. That is not an uncommon way of looking at these things. It is not an uncommon way. Anybody in their right mind would sit down and calculate the potential fallout of doing what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 5. But Acts 5 is a consolation to us that when a church, which is dealing with people who have been saved from their sins, makes very clear their intolerance of sin, that God might use it. And perhaps, folks, and now I'm off at a tangent, but perhaps... One of the things that has been very much to the detriment of Christianity America has not been its inability to be relevant and in touch with the world at large, but its unwillingness to practice the kind of holiness that God expects. It's just possible. I'm not trying to make the accusation. I'm just saying that when we're talking about what's wrong in the church today, and how hard it is to seem to get any traction, it might be that kind of thing, not just our irrelevance to the world around us. So let's go back then to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. The church is expected to address sin because the church is a body of people who have been saved from theirs. And the sanctity of the church is a prize to cling to. And so we can be aware of sin and we can in love cover some and we can confront some and sometimes we must expel some. And of course that in America, right now I'm just, that in America poses I don't want to say a challenge, but an added layer of dimension because churches, modern churches, not just in America, but modern churches have an option that many people take that is not dealt with biblically, and that is that they leave one church and go to another. And there just doesn't seem to be any mechanism for that at all in the New Testament as far as dealing with that at any level. All right, so... Let's go back then to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. I made mention of this last week. There are two kind of cycles of information given. 
Paul begins by saying, it's reported commonly, there is fornication among you, such as not mentioned among the Gentiles, that one should have his father's wife, and then he goes on to talk about them. And he ends up in verse number 5 with this, to deliver such an one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. That concludes the first cycle. Verse number 6, then he returns to the same subject matter, and he cycles through the information again. And he ends on the same note in verse number 13. Them that are without, God judgeth. Therefore, put away from among yourselves that wicked person. So there's not two separate pieces of counsel given. There's the same counsel given in different words. And there's given an explanation. There is, on the one hand, a criticism of the church. You're puffed up. And there is, on the other hand, an explanation for why the church cannot tolerate this. And that is really what we will mostly look at this evening. But I do want to point out, folks, in verses 3 and 4, the strength of the authority behind what Paul is saying should happen. Paul is telling the church that this man must be removed. And just notice the authority that he brings to bear upon that decision. Verse number four, in the name of our Lord Jesus. Okay, now let's just think about the way we use Jesus' name. We end our prayers with in his name. We end our prayers with our assessment that what we have asked for, God could, val- could validly give us. We ask for souls to be saved in Jesus' name because we know that Jesus wants to save souls. So Paul says here, in Jesus' name, in the name of our Lord Jesus, when ye are gathered together, this is the authority of the assembly, the authority of the Savior, the authority of the assembly, and the authority of the apostle, and my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we want to understand, folks, that when something like this happens, when a church does this, and it is painful and distasteful, the church does it with divine authority. They do it in the name of Jesus, on the authority of Jesus, with the support of the apostles, and what is expected to be the the support of the assembly. And they are to deliver him to Satan. And there is, folks, just as you can imagine, a ton of writing about what that means. But I would argue that what it means is that he is to be removed from the membership of the assembly. And to whatever extent, then, he is removed from spiritual protection. Whatever spiritual protection one has through the fellowship with God's people, which the Bible argues exists, he is no longer covered by it. And he is handed off to Satan. It's it's not a declaration. It's not necessarily, I mean, possibly it is, right? Paul is not saying that everybody who gets disciplined out of membership is going to die the next moment. But they are delivered away from the sanctuary of the church and delivered over to Satan. And God here is very clear 
that a dead body is better than a dead soul. And one of the ways, folks, that God will preserve the salvation of his people is by killing their body. This is what he does. He kills the body. In verse number 6, then, Paul returns to the very same idea that they are proud and puffed up about their attitude in this sin. Your glorying is not good. And here he changes his tone. In verses 1 through 4, he is speaking from the position of apostolic and Christ's authority. Do this. Do this because you're told to do it. Do it because the church has the power to do it. Do it because Christ tells you to do it. And then in verse number 5, he begins to talk to them logically. So he moves from authority to logic. It's not just a matter of authority. It is not just simply that we do it mechanically, but that we do it with understanding. This is part of being a New Testament Christian, folks, particularly in the book of 1 Corinthians. God talks to us from a position of logic. We know this. Paul regularly says to the Corinthians, don't you know this? Don't you know this? Well, you certainly know this. He's not making fun of them. He is appealing to their mind and their intellect. So in verse number 6, right? we have, we have the authorization to remove the member And now we have the explanation for why such a removal is necessary. Your glorying is not good. Know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. It only takes a little leaven to leaven the entirety of the loaf. And of course we know that he's talking about baking a loaf of bread. And you know what I know about bread is where to buy it. But even at that, I understand the principle of yeast and the necessity of yeasted bread. It's not, right? It's not one cup of flour, one cup of yeast. Oh, four or five years ago, I bought I bought a fishing boat, a used fishing boat. Uh, Rick and I drove down to Missouri and looked at it and picked it up and brought it back to Omaha. And so <clears throat> it hadn't been used in about two or three years when I bought it, and so there was a little bit of gas left in the tank, and so I called the boat motor manufacturer and was talking to them about what to do, and I said to the guy, now there's a little bit of gas in there that hadn't been run in two or three years, and... What do you think? Should I just add more gas to the tank? And he said, well, let me ask you a question. How much fresh milk would you have to add to a little bit of sour milk and still be willing to drink it? A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Look look at verse number 7. 
And I want you to look at verse number 7 kind of carefully because it, it it's, I, I, again, I'm not trying to insult the Scripture because it's not that, but it almost reads a little clumsy to our ears because Paul is trying to make a very complicated point. Your glorying is not good. Know ye not that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. In other words, folks, this young man's sin or this old man's sin is tainting the entirety of the assembly. And everybody is celebrating what's happening and everybody is being corrupted by what is happening. Nobody is unaffected. And so here's what they are to do. Purge out, therefore, the old leaven. Right? This, because this kind of sin belongs to the old person's sphere, not the new man. That ye may be a new lump, that's practice. As ye are unleavened, that's position. That you might be in practice what you are in position. This is what a church is to do. A church is to endeavor to be in practice as it is in position. For even Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Purge out the old lump. Christ was sacrificed for our sins. If there's a sense in which you're viewing this as a sacrifice, Christ was sacrificed for our sins. Verse number 8, Therefore let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Now again, there's a lot of debate about whether Paul is talking about a literal feast. And if he is talking about a literal feast, what feast would it be? Because we're not under the law and we observe no feast. And I really think, folks, but I wouldn't fight you over this, that what Paul has in mind here is the observation of the Lord's table. The, the epitome of our fellowship as an assembly. Right? There are lots of things. Right? I mean, just, there are lots of things that, that we do as believers that we do alone. We, we read our Bibles alone. For the most part, we pray alone. And that's not a bad thing, by the way. Jesus prayed alone. And our giving is not an alone thing, but it's a very private thing. But we don't take the Lord's Supper alone. You can't really take the Lord's Supper alone. It is something that has to be done together with the assembly. It is our common bond. And I think that Paul is referring to it there, and I think that he's referring to it later on when he talks about eating. But again, I wouldn't fight you over it. I couldn't prove it. I just think that's what Paul has in mind. The Right? The... The, the high point of our intimate fellowship as a group of believers is when we observe the Lord's table. We are all one at that moment. So we want to do that, right, in the, in the proper way and with the proper attitudes towards sin. <clears throat> 
Now, Paul is certainly referring to something that the Jews understood well. This was their inaugural feast. They offered, they had one day that was the Passover, and then it was followed up by the seven-day-long feast of unleavened bread. So one day they killed the Passover lamb, and for the next seven days after that, they ate only unleavened bread as their, as their bread. <clears throat> I think what Paul is getting to here is that as New Testament believers, what the Jews observed for a week, we observe for a lifetime. Not that we physically eat unleavened bread, but as the leaven was representative of sin and corruption, and the Jews acknowledged the absence of sin and corruption in the community for one week a year, we live that way. Let us keep the feast. And so verse 8, let us therefore, therefore let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, right? Not with the old sin, neither with the, the leaven of malice and wickedness, right? Because he certainly doesn't mean to suggest that having purged itself of sexual sin, the church is perfect. But with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And then in verse number 9, he comes back. And he clarifies what he means there, folks. And and I think that we need to understand the hard line that is being drawn in verses 6 through 9, or 6 through 8, to really make any sense out of verse number 9 and what follows. In other words, if, if Paul is not taking a hard line against sin in verses 5 through 8, what is the point of verses 9 through 12? If he is not levying upon the church some very stringent attitude and practice toward the existence of sin, what's the point? And so in verse number 9, I wrote unto you in an epistle. This is the letter that precedes the first biblical letter of 1 Corinthians. Which is why we know that Paul wrote at least three letters. 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, and this letter. I had written to you in a letter not to company with fornicators. Not to have communion with fornicators. I had written that to you. Don't do that. So when the church is doing it, they're doing it in violation of what Paul had already told them not to do. They can't argue ignorance. They can't say to Paul, well, we just didn't know. Because Paul said, I already wrote to you to to do this. I wrote to you that you cannot have that kind of association with fornicators. But, But let me explain myself fully. Verse number 10, yet not altogether with the fornicators of the world. See, there's, there's really not a place, folks, in the assembly for fornicators to have a warm welcome. Ex-fornicators, yes, but, but not practicing fornicators. But they're everywhere. They're everywhere. And so you have verse 10. 
pervert, yet not altogether with the fornicators of this world or with the covetous, which now really if we, in, in, I'm not going to try and do that, but it really poses some interesting challenges, right? Because when a man, when a man is a fornicator, right, that's a pretty easy decision to make, right? I mean, it's not hard to put a label on the guy. He's, he is or he isn't. But what's the tipping point for somebody who's covetous? Or extortioners? Which means just that, an extortioner. Or with idolaters. For then must she needs to go out of the world. See, folks, they're everywhere, and we're in the world, and we can't escape the presence of them or the influence of them in the world, but we're not expected to do that. We're, but we are expected to do that in the assembly. So verse 11, now I have written unto you, Right? I wrote to you in the past, don't keep company with fornicators. And, and I need, excuse me, I need to expand upon that. And I need to elaborate upon that. So here it is. Now I have written unto you not to keep company. If any man that is called a brother be a fornicator or covetous or an idolater, or a railer. That's the idea there is somebody who is verbally abusive is what we would say today. Or a drunkard or an extortioner with such an one know not to eat. And again, I think that what Paul is getting at is the whole theme that he has been getting at through here is which these people must be removed from the assembly. There's, there's not a place for them within the assembly. They're not living as we're living, and so they, right? I mean, they're not living as Christians are supposed to live. Let me put it that way. So I don't think that he's talking about having lunch. It would certainly at times include having lunch, sharing the table as a couple of brothers. But I think what he's getting at on the basis of the way he's talking about the Passover and Christ our Passover and the feast and eating, that he is talking again about this intimate union, unity of the assembly. Verses 12 and 13, For what have I to do to judge them also that are without? There's that idea again. Those, are, those people are outside of us. He's not defending what they do. He's not excusing it. He's not celebrating it. He's just pointing out that the... Right, and, and look, folks, I mean, let's be realistic. There are lots of churches that of the vast bulk of their services are devoted to dealing with the sins of the outsiders. I think if Paul were standing here in the ever any American Bible believing church, he would say from the pulpit, We don't care what Nancy Pelosi is doing. We care what God's people are doing. Our focus isn't 
Washington, D.C., unless we live in Washington, D.C. What do we have to do with them that are without? God judges them that are without. But the church, to go back to the text, do ye not, do not ye judge them that are within? Do not ye judge them that are within? And, and I, I think that this is true, folks. I think it's been unfortunately true that there are Baptist churches that will spend a vast amount of time condemning what's going on in the outside world and no amount of time dealing with what's right in front of their face. And so verse 13, them that are without God judgeth, therefore put away from among yourselves that wicked person. You, the church, deal with this man who is a professing insider. Now let me just point out to you that no addressing of the passage would be complete without making note of what happened afterwards. What did the church at Corinth do with this man? They had been celebrating his sin to the shame of Jesus Christ and the condemnation of Christ and Paul. What did they do? Well, to their credit, and we know this, turn if you would to first second to Second Corinthians chapter two. We know that what they did was take Paul's words to heart. Verse number one, I determined this with myself, Second Corinthians two that I would not come again to you in heaviness, for if I make you sorry, who is he then that maketh me glad, but the same which is made sorry by you? And I wrote this same unto you, lest when I came I should have sorrow from them of whom I ought to rejoice, having confidence in you all that my joy is the joy of you all. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart I wrote unto you with many tears, not that ye should be grieved, but that ye might know the love which I have more abundantly unto you. Now, think of those words in light of 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And don't think for a moment that Paul, Paul wrote those words simply out of anger or simply out of harshness because he is explaining here that he was brokenhearted to have to write those things to them. Verse number five, but if any have caused grief, he has not grieved me, but in part, that I may not overcharge you all sufficient to such a man is this punishment, which was inflicted of many. So we would understand this now, 2 Corinthians 2 to be a direct response to 1 Corinthians 5. A punishment was inflicted of many, so that contrarywise, you ought rather to forgive him which I would suggest to you folks that we might find that to be more, more, far more difficult than condemning him to forgive him and comfort him. Lest perhaps such an one should be swallowed up with overmuch sorrow. Right? So as we read between the lines, which is not very difficult, the church did what Paul said. They stopped celebrating the sin and they confronted the sin. And the man evidently then responded as he should have responded. 
He repented of the sin. And when we had that, folks, we reached the goal because the goal is never to kick people out of the church. Kicking people out of the church is the last resort when people will not do what they ought to do. And what they ought to do is repent of their sin. And what the church ought to do then is welcome them back in. Because what, what are we all? We're just sinners who have been forgiven. So that is the conclusion of the story, folks. Paul writes it from a position of sorrow. The church deals with it as such. The man repents as such. And Paul's words, his follow-up then, is nothing but graciousness and welcoming. And that puts the matter to bed. Okay, uh, <clears throat> let me take just a moment and uh, go over the prayer list. Is there anything that you need to add to the prayer list that's not on the sheet? Bradley. Bradley.